Chapters 1 and 2 of The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter by Ambrose Bierce. Chapter 1 On the first day of May in the year of our blessed Lord, 1680, the Franciscan monks, Egidius, Romanus, and Ambrosius, were sent by their superior from the Christian city of Passau to the monastery of Berchesgaden, near Salzburg. I, Ambrosius, was the strongest and youngest of the three, being but twenty-one years of age. The monastery of Berchesgaden was, we knew, in a wild and mountainous country, covered with dismal forests, which were infested with bears and evil spirits, and our hearts were filled with sadness to think what might become of us in so dreadful a place. But since it is a Christian duty to obey the mandates of the Church, we did not complain, and were even glad to serve the wish of our beloved and revered Superior. Having received the benediction and prayed for the last time in the Church of our Saint, we tied up our cowls, put new sandals on our feet, and set out, attended by the blessings of all. Although the way was long and perilous, we did not lose our hope, for hope is not only the beginning and the end of religion, but also the strength of youth and the support of age. Therefore our hearts soon forgot the sadness of parting, and rejoiced in the new and varying scenes that gave us our first real knowledge of the beauty of the earth as God has made it. The color and brilliance of the air were like the garment of the Blessed Virgin. The sun shone like the golden heart of the Saviour, from which streameth light and life for all mankind. The dark blue canopy that hung above formed a grand and beautiful house of prayer, in which every blade of grass, every flower and living creature, praised the glory of God. As we passed through the many hamlets, villages, and cities that lay along our way, the thousands of people, busy in all the vocations of life, presented to us poor monks a new and strange spectacle, which filled us with wonder and admiration. When so many churches came into view as we journeyed on, and the piety and ardor of the people were made manifest by the acclamations with which they hailed us, and their alacrity in ministering to our needs, our hearts were full of gratitude and happiness. All the institutions of the church were prosperous and wealthy, which showed that they had found favor in the sight of the good God whom we serve. The gardens and orchards of the monasteries and convents were well kept, proving the care and industry of the pious peasantry and the holy inmates of the cloisters. It was glorious to hear the peals of bells announcing the hours of the day. We actually breathed music in the air. The sweet tones were like the notes of angels singing praise to the Lord. Wherever we went, we greeted the people in the name of our patron saint. On all sides were manifest humility and joy, women and children hastening to the wayside, crowding upon us to kiss our hands and beseech a blessing. It almost seemed as if we were no longer poor servitors of God and man, but lords and masters of this whole beautiful earth. Let us, however, not grow proud in spirit, but remain humble, looking carefully into our hearts, lest we deviate from the rules of our holy order and sin against our blessed saint. 
I, Brother Ambrosius, confess with penitence and shame that my soul caught itself upon exceedingly worldly and sinful thoughts. It seemed to me that the women sought more eagerly to kiss my hands than those of my companions, which surely was not right, since I am not more holy than they. Besides, I am younger and less experienced and tried in the fear and commandments of the Lord. When I observed this error of the women, and saw how the maidens kept their eyes upon me, I became frightened, and wondered if I could resist should temptation accost me. And often I thought, with fear and trembling, that vows and prayers and penance alone do not make one a saint. One must be so pure in heart that temptation is unknown. Ah, me! At night we always lodged in some monastery, invariably receiving a pleasant welcome. Plenty of food and drink was set before us, and as we sat at table the monks would crowd about, asking for news of the great world of which it was our blessed privilege to see and learn so much. When our destination was learned we were usually pitied for being doomed to live in the mountain wilderness. We were told of ice-fields, snow-crowned mountains, and tremendous rocks, roaring torrents, caves, and gloomy forests. Also of a lake so mysterious and terrible that there was none like it in the world. God be with us! On the fifth day of our journey, while but a short distance beyond the city of Salzburg, we saw a strange and ominous sight. On the horizon directly in our front lay a bank of mighty clouds, with many gray points and patches of darker hue, and above, between them and the blue sky, a second firmament of perfect white. This spectacle greatly puzzled and alarmed us. The clouds had no movement. We watched them for hours and could see no change. Later in the afternoon, when the sun was sinking into the west, they became ablaze with light. They glowed and gleamed in a wonderful manner, and looked at times as if they were on fire. No one can imagine our surprise when we discovered that what we had mistaken for clouds was simply earth and rocks. These, then, were the mountains of which we had heard so much, and the white firmament was nothing else than the snowy summit of the range which the Lutherans say their faith can remove. I greatly doubt it. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 When we stood at the opening of the pass leading into the mountains, we were overcome with dejection. It looked like the mouth of hell. Behind us lay the beautiful country through which we had come, and which now we were compelled to leave forever. Before us frowned the mountains with their inhospitable gorges and haunted forests, forbidding to the sight and full of peril to the body and the soul. Strengthening our hearts with prayer and whispering anathemas against evil spirits, we entered the narrow pass in the name of God and pressed forward, prepared to suffer whatever might befall. As we proceeded cautiously on our way, Giant trees barred our progress, and dense foliage almost shut out the light of day, the darkness being deep and chill. The sound of our footfalls and of our voices, when we dared to speak, 
was returned to us from the great rocks bordering the pass with such distinctness and so many repetitions, yet withal so changed, that we could hardly believe we were not accompanied by troops of invisible beings who mocked us and made sport of our fears. Great birds of prey, startled from their nests in the treetops and the sides of the cliffs, perched upon high pinnacles of rock, and eyed us malignly as we passed. Vultures and ravens croaked above us in hoarse and savage tones that made our blood run cold. Nor could our prayers and hymns give us peace. They only called forth other fowl, and by their own echoes multiplied the dreadful noises that beset us. It surprised us to observe that huge trees had been plucked out of the earth by the roots and hurled down the sides of the hills, and we shuddered to think by what powerful hands this had been done. At times we passed along the edges of high precipices, and the dark chasms that yawned below were a terrible sight. A storm arose, and we were half-blinded by the fires of heaven, and stunned by thunder a thousand times louder than we had ever heard. Our fears were at last worked up to so great a degree that we expected every minute to see some devil from hell leap from behind a rock in our front, or a ferocious bear appear from the undergrowth to dispute our progress. But only deer and foxes crossed our path and our fears were somewhat quieted to perceive that our blessed saint was no less powerful in the mountains than on the plains below. At length we reached the bank of a stream whose silvery waters presented a most refreshing sight. In its crystal depths between the rocks we could see beautiful golden trout as large as the carp in the pond of our monastery at Passau. Even in these wild places heaven had provided bountifully for the fasting of the faithful. Beneath the black pines and close to the large lichen-covered rocks bloomed rare flowers of dark blue and golden yellow. Brother Agidius, who was as learned as pious, knew them from his herbarium and told us their names. We were delighted by the sight of various brilliant beetles and butterflies which had come out of their hiding-places after the rain. We gathered handfuls of flowers and chased the pretty-winged insects forgetting our fears and prayers, the bears and evil spirits, in the exuberance of our joy. For many hours we had not seen a dwelling, nor a human being. Deeper and deeper we penetrated the mountain region. Greater and greater became the difficulties we experienced in forest and ravine, and all the horrors of the wilderness that we had already passed were repeated, but without so great an effect upon our souls for we all perceived that the good God was preserving us for longer service to His holy will. A branch of the friendly river lay in our course, and approaching it we were delighted to find it spanned by a rough but substantial bridge. As we were about to cross, I happened to cast my eyes to the other shore, where I saw a sight that made my blood turn cold in terror. On the opposite bank of the stream, was a meadow covered with beautiful flowers, and in the center a gallows upon which hung the body of a man. The face was turned toward us, and I could plainly distinguish the features which, though black and distorted, showed unmistakable signs that death had come that very day. I was on the point of directing my companion's attention to the dreadful spectacle, when a strange incident occurred. 
In the meadow appeared a young girl, with long golden hair, upon which rested a wreath of blossoms. She wore a bright red dress, which seemed to me to light up the whole scene like a flame of fire. Nothing in her actions indicated fear of the corpse upon the gallows. On the contrary, she glided toward it barefoot through the grass, singing in a loud but sweet voice, and waving her arms to scare away the birds of prey that had gathered about it, uttering harsh cries and with a great buffeting of wings and snapping of beaks. At the girl's approach they all took flight, except one great vulture, which retained its perch upon the gallows and appeared to defy and threaten her. She ran close up to the obscene creature, jumping, dancing, screaming, until it too put out its wide wings and flapped heavily away. Then she ceased her dancing, and, taking a position at the gibbet's foot, calmly and thoughtfully looked up at the swinging body of the unfortunate man. The maiden's singing had attracted the attention of my companions, and we all stood watching the lovely child and her strange surroundings with too much amazement to speak. While gazing on the surprising scene, I felt a cold shiver run through my body. This is said to be a sure sign that someone has stepped upon the spot which is to be your grave. Strange to say, I felt this chill at the moment the maiden stepped under the gallows. But this only shows how the true beliefs of a man are mixed up with foolish superstitions. For how could a sincere follower of St. Franciscus possibly come to be buried beneath a gallows? Let us hasten, I said to my companions, and pray for the soul of the dead. We soon found our way to the spot, and, without raising our eyes, said prayers with great fervor, especially did I, for my heart was full of compassion for the poor sinner who hung above. I recalled the words of God, who said, Vengeance is mine, and remembered that the dear Saviour had pardoned the thief upon the cross at his side, and who knows that there were not mercy and forgiveness for this poor wretch who had died upon the gallows. On our approach the maiden had retired a short distance, not knowing what to make of us in our prayers. Suddenly, however, in the midst of our devotions, I heard her sweet bell-like tones exclaim, The vulture! The vulture! And her voice was agitated, as if she felt great fear. I looked up and saw a great gray bird above the pines swooping downward. It showed no fear of us, our sacred calling, and our pious rites. My brothers, however, were indignant at the interruption caused by the child's voice, and scolded her, but I said, the girl is probably a relation of the dead man. Now think of it, brothers. This terrible bird comes to tear the flesh from his face and feed upon his hands and his body. It is only natural that she should cry out." One of the brothers said, Go to her, Ambrosius, and command her to be silent, that we may pray in peace for the departed soul of this sinful man. I walked among the fragrant flowers to where the girl stood with her eyes still fixed upon the vulture which swung in ever-narrowing circles about the gallows. Against a mass of silvery flowers on a bush by which she stood, the maid's exquisite figure showed to advantage, as I wickedly permitted myself to observe. Perfectly erect and motionless, she watched my advance, though I marked a terrified look in her large dark eyes, as if she feared that I would do her harm. 
Even when I was quite near her she made no movement to come forward, as women and children usually did, and kiss my hands. "'Who are you?' I said. "'And what are you doing in this dreadful place all alone?' She did not answer me, and made neither sign nor motion, so I repeated my question. "'Tell me, child, what are you doing here?' "'Scaring away the vultures,' she replied, in a soft, musical voice, inexpressibly pleasing. "'Are you a relation of the dead man?' I asked. She shook her head. "'You knew him?' I continued, and you pity his unchristian death? But she was again silent, and I had to renew my questioning. What was his name? And why was he put to death? What crime did he commit? His name was Nathaniel Alfinger, and he killed a man for a woman, said the maid distinctly and in the most unconcerned manner that it is possible to conceive, as if murder and hanging were the commonest and most uninteresting of all events. I was astounded, and gazed at her sharply, but her look was passive and calm, denoting nothing unusual. Did you know Nathaniel Alfinger? No. Yet you came here to protect his corpse from the fowls? Yes. Why do you do that service to one whom you did not know? I always do so. How? Always, when anyone is hanged here, I come and frighten away the birds and make them find other food. See, there is another vulture." She uttered a wild, high scream, and threw her arms above her head, and ran across the meadow, so that I thought her mad. The big bird flew away, and the maiden came quietly back to me, and, pressing her sunburnt hands upon her breast, sighed deeply as from fatigue. With as much mildness as I could put into my voice, I asked her, "'What is your name?' Benedicta. And who are your parents? My mother is dead. But your father, where is he?" She was silent. Then I pressed her to tell me where she lived, for I wanted to take the poor child home and admonish her father to have better care of his daughter, and not let her stray into such dreadful places again. Where do you live, Benedicta? I pray you tell me. Here. What? Here? Ah, my child, here is only the gallows. She pointed toward the pines. Following the direction of her finger, I saw among the trees a wretched hut which looked like a habitation more fit for animals than human beings. Then I knew better than she could have told me whose child she was. When I returned to my companions and they asked me who the girl was, I answered, The Hangman's Daughter. End of chapter 2